I think we have the best legal system. It's just the people that implement it. They get lost along the way and forget what their job really is. He just kept on trying to remind me that who was in authority, who was in control, and how easy it was for my body to be found in any alley of New York City. It's a tough prison when you have the guards going against you because they are the biggest gang in the prison. They do that. They'll give a guy a life sentence and go home and eat spaghetti like it was nothing. And anybody that would say, well, why would you confess to something that you didn't do? My question to them will be, why wouldn't you confess when somebody's threatening to kill your life? The judge, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm okay. He said, well, today is your lucky day. You're going home. This is Wrongful Conviction. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today, I have a guest who I've wanted to have on the show ever since I saw a picture of him having his first meal after he was released after 20 years in prison. And he had this smile on his face that was just pure joy, it looked like. So we'll hear more about that. And I want to welcome you, Angel Gonzalez. A Waukegan man who spent the last two decades in prison could soon be set free. New DNA evidence identifies two other men who committed the 1994 rape and kidnapping he was imprisoned for. Gonzalez exonerated by DNA evidence that showed he couldn't have been one of the two men who kidnapped and raped a woman in Waukegan in 1994. In 2001, DNA testing identified one male profile that did not match Gonzalez. And just last week, further testing pointed to an additional man. It wasn't until lawyers from the Innocence Project took up his case and a change in leadership in the Lake County State's Attorney's Office that DNA testing was conducted. The 41-year-old initially confessed to the crime after a lengthy police interrogation, and the victim identified him at the time. But Gonzalez has long maintained his innocence. His attorneys say Gonzalez had an alibi and no criminal history. And after a lengthy interrogation, he signed a confession written by Waukegan police in English, despite only speaking Spanish at the time. Freedom for a man released from prison after serving nearly 21 years for a crime he did not commit. Angel Gonzalez walked out of the Dixon Correctional Facility tonight. 20 years after entering prison, Gonzalez is free. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. And we have another special guest today the director of post-conviction litigation at the Innocence Project, Vanessa Potkin. 
Thank you for having me. We're here to talk about a case that is troubling in so many ways in that it has elements of misconduct. It has elements of, of a thing called a show up, right? When we talk about the show up, which is something we haven't really focused on the show before. And various other things, Miranda rights come into play, how those were administered. But before we get into all of that, let's go back to 1994. I was living at the time in Waukegan, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes north of Chicago, Lake County. Right. And you were, how old were you at the time? I was around 20. Right, so just getting started in your life. Yes, getting started, planning on getting married. Well, this American dream finally started planning for starting a family. At the time, I talked to my ex-girlfriend, father and mother, and asked if we could marry. And uh, they had said yes. And so it was a matter of time and to save a little money and find a place to move. So everything seems like it was the way it's supposed to be for any normal person <laughs> to get married and move on in life. Yeah, and it's a, actually a very honorable to go to the father and ask permission and everything else. On July 10th of 1994, everything was sort of typical, I imagine, for you. You were visiting your girlfriend, right? Yeah, they, uh, that day uh, we went out. Stopped by uh, her friend's house and decided to uh, go eat something. And uh, we went out and ate in a fast food restaurant. After that, we went to her uh, sister's apartment. So we went there and watched a movie that night. And that's what this uh, horrible crime happened. So unbeknownst to you, in the same apartment complex, Mm -hmm. something terrible was taking place. Right. And Vanessa, I want to turn to you for a minute. Do you want to talk about the crime itself? Absolutely. So there was a woman who lived in the same kind of small apartment building who was at her house. She heard somebody buzzing her doorbell, went downstairs, and there were who she would later describe as two Latino men who abducted her into a vehicle and drove her to two different locations in the neighborhood where they sexually assaulted her. And ultimately, she was able to escape and She was very dazed and traumatized by the incident, understandably so, and ultimately made her way to a 7-Eleven where she was able to summon the police. And they brought her back to the apartment where they started to investigate the crime. And later her boyfriend, the victim's boyfriend, came on the scene and started talking to the police and trying to see if he could be helpful in any way. Right. And that's where this starts to unravel because you just wrong place, wrong time, were in the apartment complex. At some point, you got into your car, right? Presumably to go back to your place. That's correct. After we watched a movie and uh, we about to wrap it up and go home. And uh, when we walked at the apartment, if I can remember correctly, there were some squad cars on the left side of the building. And, you know, a small town, like, well, something obviously happened, maybe. Who knows in the building? It's an apartment building. They ain't really our business, so... We don't stay or ask. We just got in the car and decided to leave. And I drove to the gas station, put on some gas, and went on my way to drop off my girlfriend. And next thing you know, uh, I was pulled over right after I dropped off my girlfriend at her house. I was pulled over, and and I had no clue what happened. And, well, what we know that happened is that the victim's boyfriend saw your car, maybe out the window or whatever it was, and for some reason or other, this triggered something in him to think that this might be, I don't know how he would have had any idea that this car was in some way related to her abduction and and rape. But obviously he was wrong. But nonetheless, that's what led the police to go looking for you, is that he had seen the car and somehow made some assumption. He saw the car and the victim had given a very rough description of a large dark sedan that she was that she was abducted in. And he's outside the victim's boyfriend with the police and from a distance sees Angel in his car, which was a dark car driving off. And the victim's boyfriend says to the police, hey, that car doesn't belong here. So it was one of these things that, you know, this is a car that's not usually seen in the apartment complex. And since Angel leaves, the police just write down the license plate number. And then that's why he's later stopped, you know, some time and some miles away. But of course, you know, when Angel's driving away from the scene, his girlfriend's sitting in the front seat with him. You know, he's taking his girlfriend home. They've just left the girlfriend's sister's house. And even from an investigative perspective at the time, 
what sense would it make for the perpetrator to return to the area an hour or two later from the same place that he just abducted somebody from when the police are around? You know, it'd make a little sense that the perpetrator would return. But nonetheless, acting only on the suspicion, the boyfriend's suspicion that the car didn't belong there, they pulled Angel over. Right. He was Hispanic. That was close enough in this case. And then starts the process that we talk about a lot on the show, which is unique in this case just because of the fact that Angel was read his Miranda rights in a language he didn't speak very well at the time, right? He was read them in English when your English was not good at that time. And now you speak fluently, obviously. But did you understand at the time what they were telling you? Not at all. I don't have no no clue what was going on. When I got pulled over, I thought it was, well, some kind of traffic problem, something's wrong with the car, headlight, or, but I don't have no clue on what was going on until they bring in temporary to the courtroom after I went for a bond hearing. That's when kind of started understood what was going on. And uh, you kind of want to scream, but it wasn't me. But, uh, you know, still like, well, there's got to be some kind of confusion. It's going to be a matter of days until they say, well, there's, there's another guy. Because this is America. This kind right, of stuff this is America. This, this is, don't, they don't happen in America. But so when you were read your Miranda rights in the language that you didn't understand or speak very well, and you didn't at that time know why you were there. Right. Right. So let's think about that for a second, right? If someone gets picked up and thinks that they're there for whether you speak English or not, right. well, no matter if they read it to you in Portuguese, the fact is that if you are picked up and you think that it's just a minor violation of something that you're going to go to traffic court or whatever might be, why would you need a lawyer? I mean, you wouldn't even want a lawyer. You don't pay for a lawyer. And, and, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't want to wait for a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You'd probably want to get it done and so you could go home, go to work the next day. So it's a very bad moment in time mm-hmm. when you don't have information that you need in order to make a decision that is actually life or death. But you're just being given totally incomplete information, mm-hmm. if any at all, And you're being read something you don't understand. So, yeah, it's not set up to get to a very good conclusion. It's not not set up to protect the person who's who's meant to protect. Absolutely. And you have compounded the fact that Angel and his family recently had immigrated here. He wasn't familiar with the U.S. system and barely spoke the language. So all of those barriers also existed. And he's not being given information as to what happened or why he's being questioned. Police did say to him, where were you? And he explains where he was. He says that he was with his girlfriend, that they went to the girlfriend's sister's house. And at some point during this interrogation, which lasted many hours, police actually stopped and went out to follow up a bit on Angel's alibi, but they didn't follow up on the alibi in order to see if he could be exonerated and, you know, whether or not he committed the crime. They actually used it. They used it as a tool to trick him, you know, into trying to give an inculpatory statement. And so they went back to him and they lied to him and they said, we looked into your alibi and it didn't pan out. Nobody's supporting your alibi, which was just a lie. But of course, as you know, it's completely constitutional and acceptable for police to lie to a suspect and to say they have fingerprints or, you know, say that they have evidence that they don't have in order to try to get the suspect to confess. We call it the false evidence ploy. It's a huge problem in false confession cases because innocence is a risk factor for false confessions. You think, oh, this will sort itself out later. You don't ask for the lawyer because you know you didn't do it and you just want to, you're not thinking I need to protect my rights. I just want to tell you. And once I give my side of the story, you'll understand you have the wrong person. And of course, it doesn't end that way. Right. And it's, it's legally acceptable, but morally reprehensible. Absolutely. And he had all the information at his disposal. So he would have had every reason to believe that he would have been protected by the truth. But Mm -hmm. that's unfortunately, as we know, that's not how it works in too many cases. And his is is really a perfect example of that. There was another factor too, which was sleep, right? Because you were there for quite a while, right? You're picked up at night. Right. So you're probably a little tired, right? Mm -hmm. Stressed, obviously, from the situation. How long did this go on for and how and what effect did that have on your ability to make, you know, reasonable decisions? 
Well, after uh, I got to the police station, at one point you you so tired, you lose track of time. I don't remember exactly how many hours, what was day or night anymore. Just do what you have to do. Let me get out of here because I'm tired. I want to go sleep. I want to eat. I want to drink something. It's uh, something that uh, I still don't understand myself sometimes. When you get so tired, you just want everything to end. Like, hey, do what you have to do. Just get me out of here. Right. Well, that's a common thing too, Vanessa, right? When you mm -hmm. end up in that tiny room, mm -hmm. you're basically trapped. You can't go anywhere. You have no access to anyone to help you. And you're overmatched. And they have everything on their side. They can lie. They can keep you awake for as long as they mm -hmm. want. They can, they can make you hungry. They can stress you out but you're already stressed out enough. Mm -hmm. One of the other aspects of the case that I wanted to talk about is the show up because one of the reasons that Angel was wrongfully identified, misidentified, was because of the way that he was first viewed by the victim, right? Or the witness, which I guess was the boyfriend. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So ironically, he was basically across the street from the jail and courthouse on his way home when he was pulled over by police. And as he mentioned, he didn't know why he was being pulled over. He thought, was it a traffic stop? You know, were they checking his license? He was a bit perplexed as to what was going on. And the police called back to the victim who was at the scene with other officers back at her apartment complex and they decided to do what's called the show-up procedure. And essentially, officers brought the victim to the area where they had pulled Angel over. And the victim was seated in a patrol car. And they brought Angel in handcuffs with an officer standing next to him. And this is late at night. And so he they have their headlights on. And so that's the lighting. And they take Angel right in front of the car uh, where the victim is. And while he's handcuffed and next to an officer, they say to her, is this the man? Now, it's a highly suggestive procedure, of course, because what's the expectation? The expectation is that they caught the guy who did this. And those type of procedures show up should only be used in uh, very exceptional circumstances. And here there was absolutely no excuse to do a show up because they were across the street from the jail. They could, you know, if they wanted to do a lineup procedure with Angel, they could have said, will you come with us over to the jail and put together five or six people and got people who matched the victim's initial description and done a procedure that would have been fair. But they didn't do that. And they conducted this highly suggestive procedure and she said, yeah, that's him, which was almost inevitable <laughs> based on the circumstances. I mean, you'd identify almost anybody at that point because mm -hmm. it just looks like, well, wait a minute, the guy's in handcuffs, the mm -hmm. cops got him, he's in my neighborhood, you're Hispanic, good enough, mm -hmm. right? Who mm -hmm. cares? I mean, so you don't look like the guy, but mm -hmm. your mind mm -hmm. is not right at that point anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable that that is accepted procedure mm -hmm. because it it's just begging for mistakes to happen. To add insult to injury, they told the victim before she viewed Angel, we got somebody who matches the description of the person and driving a similar car as you've reported. So we're going to bring you over to take a look at him. Right. Done. You were, I mean, you had no chance at that point. The Not deck was totally stacked and you had no chance. But as a, in Angel's case, there were a lot of irregularities, to put it nicely, in the way that his confession was recorded mm -hmm. and the way it was documented. And if you could just touch on that for a second, because it's important for people to know. I think people would like to think that when a confession is made, it's like the guy just sits there, he has a guilty conscience, he goes, I did it, I feel bad, I don't want to tell the truth. But in this case, it was fraught with problems and errors. Right. So they brought Angel in. They had him there overnight. He really didn't know what he was there for. You know, the next morning, I believe it was, they start the formal interrogation process. And, you know, at that time, Angel's saying, I was with my girlfriend last night. We went and saw her sister. He gives his alibi. The officer leaves at one point claiming that he's going to go try to check out Angel's alibi. And that's when he comes back and essentially lies to Angel and says, uh, your alibi doesn't check out. And, you know, when you confront somebody with false evidence, people start to feel overwhelmed and a sense of hopelessness and let me get out of this situation. And they keep pressuring him. And basically, the officer even testified at trial that they told him what happened. So they gave Angel the facts of the crime. You know, he didn't know the facts. They gave it to him. 
And all this interrogation is happening in the first instance in English, and he doesn't speak English very well. And so they're interrogating him in English, and then they ask him to write out a statement. And so he writes something out in Spanish. And though he's been given bits and pieces from the police, he doesn't he, he didn't do it. So he doesn't know the details of the crime. So the the statement that he writes is just totally irrelevant. You know, it just wouldn't hold water. And so at that point, they bring somebody in who's Spanish speaking and, you know, interrogate him for much more time until they finally produce a statement that's written in English, typewritten, I believe, in English that they get him to sign without translating it into Spanish. So there's everything is wrong with this interrogation and and they didn't videotape the process at all. Right. The only video that they produced was the video of him being read his Miranda mm -hmm. rights at a time when he didn't understand what the hell they were talking about or why he was there. So yeah. And you would hope that the courts would look at this and go, wait, there's all kinds of problems here. This is yes, it's a confession, but where's the where's the beef? You know, I think that this happened, you know, in 1994, and here we are decades later, and we've had 350 DNA exonerations, and the statistics are one in four of those people who were wrongfully convicted falsely confessed to crimes that they were completely innocent of. And even though we have those numbers and so much has been revealed about false confessions, there still is this attitude prevalent among courts and people in the system and even to some extent the general public that if you confessed, you did it. And people think of themselves and whatever strength or fortitude they think they have and how they would respond. Oh, I would never confess to something I didn't do, even if I was interrogated. And so we still find that people have trouble believing that somebody would admit to something that they didn't do. So they don't give it the scrutiny that you're just talking about. You know, nobody stops in the system to say, hey, this doesn't make sense. And right now, really, the only screening that courts do for whether a confession should be admitted is whether or not it's voluntary. Did you get Mar your Miranda rights and knowingly waive them? Nobody looks at, is this reliable? No court is doing a pre-screening before trial to say, are there too many discrepancies between the facts? Does the story just not make sense? And if so, we're, we're not going to allow this evidence in. And Angel's case happened in a jurisdiction, Lake County, Illinois, Waukegan, that had many other wrongful convictions, some of them false confessions. And of course, it's, Chicago's not too far away with the torture cases and real legacy of beating and coercing uh, false confessions out of people. But it doesn't need to be that type of physical coercion, you know, as we see just presenting false evidence or using some of these other techniques that police do. You know, you just pointed out if you have experience with the system, maybe you know not to talk to the police. But if you don't, and you go in there and the police say, just tell me what happened. You just need to talk to me and I'm going to help you. Some people believe that or it's not going to be as bad if you tell me now. And they start throwing out scenarios and lead people to believe if I just give them something, I can get out of this stressful situation. And because I'm innocent, people will find it out as the system goes on. So it all conspires to end up in a situation like you, Angel, found yourself in. When in June of 1995, you ended up in court right. facing what ultimately might as well have been a death sentence because you were sentenced to 55 years in prison for something you didn't have anything to do with, didn't understand, and didn't know about. What was that like? Here you are being sentenced to 55 years in life for a crime that you don't commit. You know, uh, there's something that scars you for life, being accused of such a horrible crime. I used to think and, and say, well, I wish I, at least we have been accused of all the kind of crime, not a rape and, and kidnapping a female. And when you live there, it's, it's just, you start learning to live like some kind of animal that all the bigger animals want to eat. So you, you have to watch yourself everywhere you go, what time, who's around you. And unfortunately, to this day, I still do it. Sometimes always where I'm going, who I'm going with, what they're going to think of me. But it's something that I don't wish upon nobody. It really messes you up mentally. 
And physically, I'm sure, too. But the, you know, the, the crazy irony of that situation, too, is that here we have a guy, Vanessa, right, who was so honorable that he was asking his girlfriend's father, is it okay if I propose to your daughter? He wasn't sleeping with her before the, the wedding, right? Really an old-fashioned, like, you mm-hmm. know, very honorable. There's no other way to describe it. And then to be convicted of the most dishonorable crime, mm-hmm. right, one of them that you could be convicted of, right, mm-hmm. other than doing it to a child, there's mm-hmm. nothing, you know, that's probably more sort of despicable that you can think of than raping and kidnapping and raping a woman. And so it's really sort of a cruel twist of fate that this would happen to somebody like you, who's the last person in the world that would ever be involved with something like mm-hmm. this based on, on what we know about, about you, Angel. So it really gets interesting from a legal perspective, right? And from an innocence perspective in 2001, because after having been in now for six years in this terrible situation, being in a maximum security prison as someone who's been convicted of these terrible crimes, you got a break. The DNA was found and it didn't match. Right. So there was a first round of DNA testing that happened in 2001, and they were able, through the testing, to find sperm evidence and get a DNA profile for it. And Angel was absolutely excluded as the source of that profile. But because two people had committed the crime, the state took the position, well, this sperm must come from the other person that we never caught, the second assailant. And so these DNA test results don't prove your innocence. And it would be, I guess, another 13 years until that day would come. I mean, what kind of science is that, right? It seems to me, I'm not a scientist, but it seems to me that if the DNA wasn't there, just because there was two assailants, your DNA would still have to be there, would it not? It might be mixed in or whatever, but there would be some traces of Angel's DNA at the scene if he had been one of the rapists. Well, I guess arguably someone would say, how do you know that the second assailant didn't wear a condom or maybe didn't ejaculate and didn't leave any of their DNA? I mean, nowadays DNA is so sensitive that if people have sexual contact or even with touch DNA, there's, you know, studies that are done on handshaking. And after 10 seconds of handshaking, you could get enough DNA just by swabbing somebody's hand who they shook hands with. So it's very sensitive today. So theoretically, was there a possibility that that semen could have belonged to the second assailant? I think so. The things are mounting, right? There's all the things that we talked mm-hmm. about with the... And, and in fact, in your trial, Angel, there were witnesses that testified on your behalf. You know, we've seen so many in, right. Innocence Project clients where the court-appointed attorney didn't even bother to call witnesses or th- there weren't any witnesses or whatever mm-hmm. else. In your case, there were witnesses who got up on the stand and said, no, he was with me. He couldn't have done this crime. So you have that. Now you have the DNA six years later that emerges. Mm -hmm. That's like, well, okay, so his DNA is not there. The prosecution at that point has to know that the case is falling apart, right? Right. These 2001 DNA test results came about at a time when in Lake County, there was a prosecutor named Michael Mermel, who was the chief of the felony division for many years there. And he basically just didn't believe in science. So how frustrating is this, Angel? You're in this impossible situation, a peaceful guy stuck in the very violent prison where people don't have respect for you. They don't have respect for anybody, but particularly for you because of the fact of the nature of the crime that you were convicted of. And now your hopes are raised as you're trying to survive day to day. Your hopes were raised by knowing that this testing had been done, which proved what you had been saying all along, but nobody was listening, that you weren't the guy. And now you get a phone call and they say, well, even though it proves that you're innocent, you're still stuck here. I mean, how did you deal with that? Uh, <laughs> what I used to put on my mind is that I have to be strong for my mother. And I believe that's what keeps me fighting because she always believed in me, even with a lot of the people doubted, like, well, if the law system say that you did it, well, there's the law system. We kind of have to believe them. It's just you saying you don't commit the crime, but... At the end, in, and into this day, I, I look at my mom, and, and that's what keeps me going. When I have rough days, like, I can deal with this no more. It's just hard, but I look at my mom, call her, and I keep moving on. When you you find yourself in a situation like that, for me, I was going to prison, I was really convicted. It don't matter what you go through in life, you got to find something. In my case, it was my mom. Something to move along, to keep on fighting. 
and sometimes you, you feel like you're in a war, but you don't have no weapons. So you got to find some kind of weapon. And like I said, in my case, it was my mom. I have to do it to show my mother that I don't commit this horrible crime, even though when she told me always, I know you don't commit the crime. I don't raise the kind of person. everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ultimately, you somehow or other got in touch with the Innocence Project. How did that happen? How did you find out? How did you get in touch? How did you learn that they were taking your case? Well, that is, it's kind of weird how everything evolved to find out about the Innocence Project. I kind of lost my mind for a while when I got to prison and uh, I got in trouble. I was punished and sent to a uh, segregation. And after I finished doing the time, they, they moved me to uh, another building and uh, I met an old man. They uh, I'm still looking for him. His name, I used to call him in prison, Old T. This guy, he was on his probably close to his 60s. He used to work in the law library, and uh, we started talking, and uh, and I asked him a little bit about the best way I could about the system, and uh, explain a little bit what's going on. And he said, well, you have any papers, any transcripts, or something that I can look at? Because anybody say that. But luckily for me, I have uh, some transcripts of the appeal, I can remember correctly. So I showed them to him, and uh, within a couple of days, probably he read them. And he told me, he said, well, you know, this, I see a lot of problems with your case. He said, I'm not an attorney, but uh, I know an organization. They do take cases like yours, uh, and his name is the Innocence Project out of New York. And uh, I said, well, you want me to 
we can write them a letter because at the time we were uh, the prison was on lockdown and we don't have access to go to the library to get the uh, right form to fill up. So I said, sure, thank you very much. It would be good if you can do that for me. So he did in 1997, I believe. He wrote the letter to the Innocence Project. I remember getting a, like a postcard back saying, the, uh, well, we got your letter, we got your information. Don't write us, don't call us, we write you, we contact you. There's a lot of people waiting on line. So I said, well, okay, well, that's it, you know. But uh, even after that, always, when I was fighting the case with my family's help, they paid an attorney for appeals, post-appeals, and everything we could. And the back of my mind, there was always, well, there, there's still hope. There's the Innocence Project. Maybe somehow, some way, one day, they will help me. And uh, the more I started understanding English, I started seeing the cases about Barry, Shaq, and the organization, and the DNA, and all the programs on TV, so I was always like, well, hopefully one day they will come and help me out. And then one day, did you get a letter? How did you find out that they had accepted the case? I got transferred to another institution. I started going, went to school, and uh, out of nowhere, one day out of the blue, I got a letter from the Innocence Project. Like, look, your name come out, and uh, we need your transcripts. Please send you your transcripts, and uh, we're going to look into your case. So we did send the transcripts around 05, I'm not very good at time. And uh, it went on like that for probably another couple of years. And I was like, well, I sent the transcripts and I don't hear anything. But one day I got the letter. I remember Molly mm-hmm. saying that you, we read your transcripts and uh, I think you are innocent. And uh, man, that alone, you don't know what to do. I was so happy. But at the same time, you got to remember where you at. You can scream and say, well, I'm, I'm innocent. They're going to help me. So they called my mom, and <laughs> she was so happy and so like, okay, now what? When are they going to come and get you? <laughs> I'm like, well, mom, it's a long process. It's going to be a while. I imagine. First, they got to do DNA testing. They got to go to court and, and so on. So it was the longest time <laughs> that I did in prison. Longest days waiting for something, and and I talked to Vanessa, and I was so happy. I wasn't home yet, but like just with the simple fact that the Innocence Project is helping you, and they're looking at your case, and man, to me, that was big. I know from talking to other formerly incarcerated people that you can't run around and show all your emotion, and you know you're going to get in trouble with the guards or the inmates, or something bad can happen. But did you have somebody in prison that you were close to that you could share this information? Did you just keep it to yourself and tell your mother, and that was it? How did you? Did you have a person, like one person that you trusted? Uh, I did at the time. It was a woman there. I had met another prison many years ago, and uh, he's an older gentleman. He's still there, unfortunately. And we become good friends because he knew about the law. He used to work in the law library as well. And uh, he knew about my case. And I explained him and showed him the letter. He said, oh, man, that's some great news, man. You're going home. And what about the guy who first told you about the Innocence Project in the law library? Did you get to tell him the good news? Unfortunately, uh, we had moved around in the prison system. And uh, I don't know where and he ended up. And uh, I don't get to get his real name. And I... Uh, when you're in prison, you move so much, and they shake you down. They go through your paperwork, and uh, sometimes it's not allowed to have other inmates' information on your property, so you can really have other inmates' information. And, uh, and to this day, uh, I'm still trying to figure out who he was, and uh, I'm planning on probably hiring a private detective and uh, find out who he was and where he at. Maybe maybe I, somebody who's listening knows the answer. Yeah. What was his name again? His uh, nickname was Old T. Old T. Okay. If anybody knows Old T, <laughs> send an email to the Innocence Project. We'll make sure to get it. It's been one of our dreams to try to to find Old T. We, Let, we let's find it. But what what email address of the Innocence Project though? Because you can't just send it to the Innocence Project. I'm just <laughs> info at innocenceproject.org. Yeah, and then put the subject line Angel Gonzalez, and then we'll, yes, we'll, we'll get this it. would be incredible if we could actually oh, find yeah. him, and you know that would be an amazing moment. Ultimately, Vanessa, how did this get resolved? It took several years, still Mm -hmm. from this point, must have trusted your patience. How did we win? So fortunately, a new DA was elected. And I think, you know, when people look at elections that are going on through the country, you know, they usually look at kind of the highest levels. But these DA races are so important because 
what a difference a district attorney can make in terms of who's being prosecuted and post-conviction just getting access to evidence to prove innocence. And so the old regime was out in Lake County and a new DA came in, Mike Nurheim, and that was a fortunate move for us because we reached out to the state's attorney, Nurheim, and requested that we be able to retest Angel's evidence. And under the previous administration, we would have been fighting for five years just to get access to the evidence. But he agreed we didn't have to do any litigation. And so the evidence pretty quickly went off to the lab. What took some time and was really stressful about Angel's case is that, you know, when we read his transcripts and we looked at the confession and we looked at how he even got caught up in this. I think Molly was sincere when she she was a law student. She said that, you know, she knew you were innocent. So what was so stressful for us is we knew that the only way we were going to be able to exonerate him was to get a second profile. And, you know, there had already been testing. And so we started to look at the victim's shorts. The perp, One of the perpetrators had ripped off of her shorts and they were torn. And so the lab was able to get some male DNA from the area where the perpetrator actually tore her shorts and some other samples. And so that created the second profile in addition to the sperm, which showed, look, we now have the genetic profile of the two men who did this crime and neither of those people is, is Angel. And I, I think once we had that proof, it was it was pretty quick. It was a matter of weeks before uh, they went back and they talked to the victim. And in these cases, the victim was traumatized. And a lot of times it's, you know, really hard for them to accept that innocent people went to prison and the real perpetrators are still out there. And so she said, well, maybe it's my boyfriend's DNA. And so they tested the boyfriend and he was excluded, further establishing the DNA profiles we had came from the two people who did it. And and it was an angel. And so you know, initially we thought it was over because the uh, prosecutor was agreeing to vacate his conviction and we were ready to go into court. And we expected that that day his conviction was tossed. He was just going to walk out of court and into the arms of his mom and his dad, who was who was there and had suffered a stroke and some health complications while Angel was was locked up. And what a terrible thing that this poor victim has to learn 20 years later that the people that did this to her got away with it. They literally got away with it. And they were free to go out and do the same thing to other innocent women. And that all this time, she had been told a false narrative. It's such a terrible new trauma for someone to have to endure, to now find out that they've misplaced their anger and also that they've contributed to just a terrible, terrible situation that, that you had to adore. I mean, I can't even process that whole, it's a whole mixture of, of, of horrors for somebody to have to, uh, and almost to relive the whole thing again 20 years later. How did you find out? Was it in court that you found out or was it later? Well, uh, I believe I speak to Vanessa. It was on a Friday and she said, well, look, we're going to court Monday and uh, it's not over yet. Things still can happen. You may come home that day. You may not. So we're like, oh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we're like, okay. So at the time, I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm coming home because everything is there. Like, there shouldn't be nothing from them. So they can stop me. But at the same time, like, well, maybe they can come up with some crazy thing. They have no idea and say, well, you're not going home because of this. And uh, ironically, it's kind of what happened that day. We went to court and everything went our way. And, and they said, well, wait, you did something in prison. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have to talk about this too, yeah. When Angel's talking about this other case, he's talking about the fact that at one point in prison, he destroyed, uh, I'm talking about he like you're not here, but yeah. So Angel, you seems like such a gentle guy. Uh, I mean, you have a breaking point too, like anybody mm -hmm. else, and you destroyed a sink in the prison. Correct. Was that in solitary confinement? Yes, Right, so you're in solitary confinement, you have nowhere to take your aggressions out. Rather than take it out on another inmate or a guard or anything else, at least you took it out on an inanimate object. I mean, the poor sink, I'm sure it had feelings <laughs> too, but anyway. So Angel destroyed this sink and was given an additional three-year sentence for assault and battery on a sink. Yeah, exactly. Oh, is that an actual crime? Destruction of state property, three oh, years. Right. Concurrent sentence, so an additional three years. Hey, 
everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So now here it is. You're in, you were in the courtroom, I assume, Vanessa, when... Yes. Yeah. So I was in the courtroom. You know, it's a pretty surreal experience because we're standing there. We're with the prosecutor. The prosecutor stands up and declares Angel innocent of this brutal rape that he has a 55 year sentence for. And everybody's acknowledging he's been wrongfully convicted. And they say, no, he has to go back because the conviction for destruction of state property still stands. And not only does it still stand, but he was prosecuted for that in the town where the prison was. So we then had to try to file a motion and drive the following day to the court in the prison town. And that's when Angel appeared through video conference. And we basically, we had some legal grounds to go back and overturn the conviction, but it was basically throwing our mercy on the court and saying he's been wrongfully convicted of this other crime and please vacate this conviction so he can finally come home, which the judge did. That's a good yeah. judge. Yeah. I mean, because he didn't judge. have to do that. Yeah. Right. right. And we she, know that it was a woman. Oh, yeah. well, I <laughs> um, so so the judge shows no mercy on the sink, but shows mercy on you, which was certainly logical, rational and compassionate thing to do. And now you're finally you're finally there, right? Were you on video when this was happening? Yes, the court was uh, on videotape. So you were in the I was jail? In, I was inside prison. You're back in the prison? Yes. So they have a room there, and I'm trying to visualize this, right? So you're in this room. Are you you're there with a guard? Yes. And you're watching this on video? Right. You're watching the judge in front of you. And then what? Now you're still inside this room. What, does, what was your reaction? What was the guard's reaction? Well, they don't know what to do. Like, okay, now you finally, all the cases are dismissed, and 
how we process this. They they were went in the halfway paperwork in the morning and about like so we don't know if you go home. And I said, Well, do you know if you go home? Like, no. So nobody knew until four thirty and now it's late and second ship guards, they don't know what to do. Like, well, well how we process this? Right, somebody's picking you up, we just cannot let you go here in the town lose. <laughs> I don't know why not, but yeah. His legal team, we were in the car, paralegals, law students driving over to get Angel. And then this is, you know, kind of the crazy part of the Innocence Project job. We're on the way and we're like, what is he going to wear? So we're like, is there a Walmart? <laughs> is there any store in this town? And so we're like, take a detour to go try to find some clothes in a Walmart. What size is he? We don't know. You know, so we're doing our best guess. I think we didn't. You look good in the pictures. We no, didn't do too bad. Pretty good. <laughs> it was very good. Thank you. So <laughs> Thanks you to drove. Gina. And, this, and by the way, I, I can't imagine. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm going back for a second. So was the guard, what was the guard's reaction? I mean, he's never seen anything like this before. Did he get emotional? Did you get emotional? Were you, by this point, you were just like, what the? Hell, I mean, well, uh, I used to be housed in a unit they used to call it a, a positive living unit. So, most of the people they were uh, working on themselves to better themselves. Uh, and I used to be a volunteer in the prison for years. So, I, I pretty much knew everybody in the building. And, and some of the guards, I remember one of the officers I used to work for. I told him, one day you're going to see me walking out of the door. You're going to walk me all the way to the door and going to say, good luck. He used to laugh about it like, why? You're going to escape? <laughs> like, no, you're going to walk me to the door and you're going to say good luck. But he was a second shift officer. So like, well, I don't even work in the morning. So you, I'm not going to do that. And and funny enough, the day he, he wasn't working in there in the unit, but he come and relieve another officer like, hey, I'm going home. He just looked at me and smiled and said, well, I guess it was true what you was telling me. I said, well, good luck. By the time, and, and, and they, in the particular unit, and most of the prisons, they already knew because the media, the news, who was in Telemundo and all the other local channels. So they kind of knew what was going on already. It was something that you free, you go home, but the door is not open. And what about, let's, <laughs> let's do the split screen now, Vanessa. So now mm -hmm. you are driving around trying to find a Walmart at the, you know, in the nighttime and somewhere around Waukegan. <laughs> And what was the spirit in the car? Was everybody freaking out? Like the law students probably hadn't experienced this before. Right. We were very excited. And I think many people had such a special connection to Angel. Uh, yeah, it was a little psychotic. I mean, once we realized the conviction was still there, we were on the side of the road trying to draft a motion to get filed, to get him out. So it's a, it a whirlwind of a 24 hours and we had a law student paralegal and I was like, look, just here's your time to step up to be lawyers, start to do some <laughs> research, find a way that we're going to vacate this conviction. And yeah, and then we were picking out the clothes, but it was, it was, we were really excited for this moment. And we had already met Angel's mother and father and siblings and beautiful extended family at the court hearing when they were so disappointed to the day before when his conviction was vacated, but he didn't come home. And so it was excitement and just really happy that we were able to get him and, and bring him home that night. And there was a huge party waiting for him with balloons and lots of food, great food. Right. And now what? How's your life now? I mean, you've been out for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I know you talked about how you're still dealing with some of the psychological issues and trauma that you experienced. But what are you doing? How are you adjusting how are things for you now? Well, I'm trying to uh, still re readjust to life. Some days are harder than others, definitely. But again, I go and, and think about what can I do positive today. And especially right now, you invite us to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, I do what I can to talk about the Innocence Project, to give hope to those who still fighting their cases in prison. It's not easy, but as long as you keep on fighting, someday... Help is going to come from the Innocence Project or other organizations. Somebody, somewhere, somehow was doing the same thing for me. I feel like that's what I have to continue on doing. Spread the word. Just talk to sometimes the mothers or those wrongfully convicted. They call me and ask me about what can I do for my son? Who are those lawyers that get you out? How they get you out? How much they charge you? And all I can tell them sometimes is you got to keep on fighting and this is the information. Call them, make sure that he writes them and don't give up. And that's what I'm, I'm doing right now. 
I have a dream when I was inside, I'll take construction classes that uh, when I come home, I'll start something to help others. And that's what I'm doing right now. I just started working on it and uh, I'm hoping or building a house for the purpose of when somebody's coming home, he's been wrongfully convicted. He have a place to land, a place where they can at least teach him the most basic stuff of life. Here, there's a phone. This is how you use it. You don't have to worry about paying rent. You don't have to worry about paying bills for six, eight months as long as we can allow you to stay here so you can start living again. Because when you come home, it's, 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 it's a big shock. 20-something years for me, and now everything has changed. And to this day, when they send me the tickets to fly on, on the phone, like, well, what I do now? Then you get the email, like, how I get my email? <laughs> so small things like that, that I'm still learning. Yes, imagine if they take you to another planet. Like, here you are. Here's what you need. Here's all the technology, but you don't know how to use it. You just look at it like, okay, now who's going to help me? I believe that in a lot, of, a lot of places, a lot of states, we still have the need for somebody to kind of mentor you and teach you the most basic stuff. Yes, there's something as simple as going to the store and then pick up toiletries. Like, now you have all these products. What I pick or how I go about it. Did I get in line? I used to go to the store and I see everybody paying with their credit cards and swipe their phone. Like, okay, what I do? Right. And then I, don't, I don't have cash. They give me a card. I'm like, okay. It must be overwhelming for somebody coming back. And that's incredible that you, like so many of the other exonerees, almost all of the other exonerees, are driven by this desire to help other people both get out of the situation that they're in and to adjust to society. And I talk about it a lot when. People see the courthouse steps and the happy celebration and the whole thing, but it's a whole new series of challenges uh, after you get out. And I think we as a society have to be much more accepting and understanding and uh, more welcoming in terms of job opportunities, in terms of compensation, in terms of all that stuff for people who we are responsible for helping. I mean, our brothers and sisters that we have horribly wronged. And then you come back and it's like, well, good luck. That's it. Like the guard said, good luck. But I mean, like, good luck. You need a little more than that. You need a hand, you know. Angel, we have a tradition on wrongful conviction, which is that at the end of each episode, I offer to the star of our show, which is in this case you, if you would like to share any last thoughts about anything at all. Well, I just uh, want to ask everybody, uh, please keep on contributing to the Innocence Project and other organizations like the Innocence Project to help those who are still fighting. It can happen to anybody, unfortunately. I'm not against for the system, but there's a lot of problems with the legal system. The abolition need to be reviewed and make it work better. Because in this case, the system not just failed me, failed the victim. I can't even imagine what she had to endure throughout all these years. And at the end, well, I'm free, but probably she's still fighting. So please keep on giving financially. There's a lot of law students, a lot of smart young people up there. They can help to make this country better. Thank you, Angel Gonzalez, and so happy you're here, and I wish you all the blessings in life, and head of post-conviction litigation at the Innocence Project, Vanessa Pock, and thank you for coming and joining us here on Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
take good care and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.